Front Desk by Kelly Yang. Chapter 1. My parents told me that America would be this amazing place where we could live in a house with a dog, do whatever we want, and eat hamburgers till we were red in the face. So far, the only part of that we've achieved is the hamburger part. But I was still holding out hope, and the hamburgers here are pretty good. The most incredible burger I've ever had was at the Houston Space Center last summer. We weren't planning on eating there. Everybody knows museum food is 50,000 times more expensive than outside food. But one whiff of the sizzling bacon as we passed by the cafe and my knees wobbled. My parents must have heard the howls of my stomach because the next thing I knew, my mother was rummaging through her, her purse for coins. We only had enough money for one hamburger, so we had to share. But man, what a burger. It was a mile high with real bacon and mayonnaise and pickles. My mom likes to tease that I devoured the whole thing in one gulp, leaving the two of them only a couple of crumbs. I'd like to think I gave them more than that. The other thing that was great about that space center was the free air conditioning. We were living in our car that summer, which sounds like a lot of fun, but actually wasn't because our car's AC was busted. So after the burger, my dad parked himself in front of the vent and stayed there the entire rest of the time. It was like he was trying to turn his fingers into popsicles. My mom and I bounced from exhibit to exhibit instead. I could barely keep up with her. She was an engineer back in China, so she loves math and rockets. She ooed and awed over this module and that module. I wish my cousin Shen could have been there. He loves rockets too. When we got to the photo booth, my mother's face lit up. The booth took a picture of you and it made you look like you were a real astronaut in space. I went first. I put my head where the cardboard cutout was and I smiled when the guy said cheese. And when it was my mom's turn to take her photo, I thought it would be funny to jump into her shot. The result was a picture of her in an astronaut suit hovering over Earth and me standing right next to her in my flip-flops doing bunny ears with my fingers. My mother's face crumpled when she saw her picture. She pleaded with the guy to let her take another one, but he said, no can do, one picture per person. For a second thought, I thought she was going to cry. We still have the picture. Every time I look at it, I wish I could go back in time. If we could do it all over again, I would not photobomb my mom's picture and I would give her more of my burger. Not the whole thing, but definitely some more bites. At the end of that summer, my dad got a job as an assistant fryer at a Chinese restaurant in California. That meant we didn't have to live in our car anymore and we could move into a small one-bedroom apartment. It also meant my dad brought home fried rice from work every day. But sometimes, he'd also bring back big old blisters all up and down his arms. He said they were just allergies, but I didn't think so. I think he got them from frying food all day all day long in the sizzling walk. My mom got a job in front of the restaurant as a waitress. Everybody liked her and she got great tips. She even managed to convince the boss to let me go with her to the restaurant after school since there was nobody to look after me. My mother's boss was a wrinkly, white-haired Chinese man who reeked of garlic and didn't believe in wasting anything. Not cooking oil, not toilet paper, and certainly not free labor. You think you can handle waitressing, kid? He asked me. Yes, sir, I said. Excitement pulsated in my ear. My first job. I was determined not to let him down. There was just one problem. 
I was only nine then and needed two hands just to hold one dish steady. The other waitresses managed five plates at a time. Some didn't even need hands. They could balance a plate on their shoulder. When the dinner rush came, I too loaded up my carrying tray with five dishes. Big mistake. As my small bag gave into the mountainous weight, all my dishes came crashing down. Hot soup splashed onto customers and fried prawns went flying across the restaurant. I was fired on the spot and so was my mother. No amount of begging or promising to do the dishes for the next gazillion years would change the owner's mind. The whole way home I fought tears in my eyes. I thought of my three cousins back home. None of them had ever gotten fired before. Like me, they were only children as well. In China, every child is only a child. Ever since the government decided all families are only allowed one. Since none of us had siblings, we were our siblings. Leaving them was the hardest part about leaving China. I didn't want my mom to see me cry in the car, but eventually that night, she heard me. She came into my room and sat on my bed. Hey, it's okay, she said in Chinese, hugging me tight. It's not your fault. She wiped a tear from my cheek. Through the thin walls, I could hear the sounds of husbands and wives bickering and babies wailing from neighboring apartments, each one as crammed as ours. Mom, I asked her, why did we come here? Why did we come to America? I repeated. My mother looked away and didn't say anything for a long time. A plane flew overhead and the picture frames on the wall shook. She looked in my eyes. Because it's freer here, she said, which didn't make any sense. Nothing was free in America. Everything was so expensive. But mom, one day you'll understand, she said, kissing the top of my head. Now go to sleep. I drifted to sleep, thinking about my cousins and missing them and hoping they were missing me back. After my mother got fired from the restaurant, she got very serious about job hunting. She called it getting back on her horse. It was 1993 and she bought every Chinese newspaper she could find. She pored over the job section with a magnifying glass like a scientist. Then that's when she came across an unusual listing. A man named Michael Yao had put an ad out in the Chinese newspaper looking for an experienced motel manager. The ad said that he owned a little motel in Anaheim, California, and he was looking for someone to run the place. The job came with free boarding, too. My mother jumped up and grabbed the phone. Our rent, then, cost almost my dad's salary. And who says things in America were free? To her surprise, Mr. Yao was equally enthusiastic. He didn't seem to mind that my parents weren't experienced and really liked the fact that they were a couple. Two people for the price of one, he joked in his thick Taiwanese-accented Mandarin when we went over to his house the next day. My parents smiled nervously while I tried to stay as still as I could and not screw it up for them like I screwed up my mother's restaurant job. We were sitting in the living room of Mr. Yao's house, or rather his mansion. I made myself look at the floor and not stare at the top of Mr. Yao's head, which was all shiny under the light, like it had been painted in egg white. The door opened and a boy about my age walked in. He had on a t-shirt that said, I don't give a, and underneath a picture of a rat and a donkey. I raised an eyebrow. Jason, Mr. Yao said to the boy, say hello. Hi, Jason muttered. My parents smiled at Jason. 
What grade are you in? They asked him in Chinese. Jason replied in English, I'm going to fifth grade. Ah, same as Mia, my mom said. She smiled at Mr. Yao. Your son's English is so good. He turned to me. Hear that, Mia? No accent. My cheeks burned. I felt my tongue in my mouth like a limp lizard. Of course he speaks good English. He was born here, Mr. Yao says. He speaks native English. Native. I mouthed the word. I wonder if I, if I worked really hard, would I be able to speak native English one day? Or was that something completely off limits for me? I looked over at my mom, who was shaking her head. Jason disappeared off into his room, and Mr. Yao asked my parents if they had any questions. Just to make sure, we can live at the motel for free? My mom asked. Yes, Mr. Yao said. And what about... My mom struggled to get the words out. She shook her head, embarrassed to say, Will we ever get paid? All right. Payment, Mr. Yao said, said like it hadn't dawned on him at all. How's $5 a customer? I glanced at my mom. I could tell she was doing math in her head because she's always got this dreamy smile on her face. 30 rooms at $5 a room. That's $150 a night, my mom said, her eyes widening. She looked at my dad. That's a lot of money. It's a humongous amount of money. We could buy hamburgers every day, for each one for each of us. We wouldn't even need to share. When can you start, Mr. Yao asked. Tomorrow, my dad and mom, my mom and dad blurted out at the same time. Mr. Yao laughed. As my parents got up to shake hands, Mr. Yao muttered, I have to warn you, it's not the nicest motel in the world. My parents nodded. I could tell it made no difference to them what the motel looked like. It could look like the inside of a Greyhound bus toilet for all we cared. At $150 a day plus free rent, we were in. Desk by Kelly Yang. Chapter 2. The Cala Vista Motel sat on the corner of Coast Boulevard and Meadow Lane. It was a small motel, the first of three motels in a row. The Topaz Inn and the Lagoon Motel were right next door and bigger, but I immediately decided I liked our little motel the best. With its creamy walls and red doors, it looked warm and inviting. I looked up at the sign and read the words, Low Rates, Cable TV, Disneyland, just five miles away. Excitedly, I asked my parents if that meant we could go and visit, go on all the rides. We probably could, my mom said. I smiled, savoring the moment. Our lives were about to change. We were going to become Disneyland-going people. As if things couldn't get any better, the Cala Vista had a pool. It was right out in front. The water sparkled under the golden sun. I closed my eyes and pictured myself doing cannonballs in the water all summer long. This was going to be amazing. Just behind the pool was the front office. I'd asked my parents in the car whether I could help out at the front desk and my dad had chuckled and said, we'll see. Mr. Yao was waiting for us in the front office. He buzzed us in and lifted the divider so we could all get behind the front desk. The front desk was a long wooden desk that stretched 
almost the entire width of the room. Just behind the front office were the manager's quarters, where Mr. Yao led us next. There was a living room with a bed in it, and he pointed to the bed. You guys sleep there, he said to, the, to my parents, so you can hear the customers in the middle of the night. Customers come in the middle of the night? my dad asked. Mr. Na Yao nodded. Of course, it's a motel. But won't that wake them up? I asked. Mr. Yao rolled his eyes. That's the point, he said. Next, he led us over to the small bedroom just to the right of the living room and the kitchen. The girl can sleep here, Mr. Yao said. For some reason, he kept calling me the girl, even though I already told him my name several times. I put my stuff down in the small bedroom, then joined my parents and Mr. Yao in the front office. Mr. Yao was explaining the buzzer. One wrong buzz and it's all over, he said. See that glass? He pointed to the thick glass enclosing the front office. That's bulletproof glass. You see a bad guy come up? You don't need to worry. They can't hurt you. But if you press this buzzer, he puts his fingers on the buzzer just under the front desk in a loud buzz roared. That door right there gets unlocked, Mr. Yao said. And then what? I asked him. And then he's inside, Mr. Yao said. I looked around to see if there were any other magical buttons or bulletproof glass inside the office. There weren't. I asked Mr. Yao how we could tell if someone was a bad guy. Hmm, based on how they look, of course, he said, which made me wonder because it's not like bad people walk around with a sticker on their head saying, I'm bad. The bottom line is, don't let any bad guys in, Mr. Yao warned. His pupils expanded as he said the word bad. While Mr. Yao took my parents out back to show them the laundry room and cleaning supplies, I stayed in the front office. I climbed up on top of the desk, front desk stool. Gently, I reached down and touched the buzzer with my finger. It was greasy like it had been pressed hundreds of times. Slowly, I pressed on it and heard it zap. I pressed it again. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Power coursed through my fingertips. I closed my eyes and pictured myself checking customers in. Why, yes, Mrs. Connolly, I'd bl be glad to show you to your room. Right this way, I'd say. Certainly, I can help you with your luggage. It would be my pleasure. So deep was I in my fake customer relations that I almost didn't hear it when a real customer walked up and tapped on the front gl office glass. I looked up to see a thin African-American man about 50 or so years old, smiling and waving at me. He motioned with his hand for me to buzz him in. Oh, all right, I said, then press the buzzer. Buzz. He pushed open the door and walked in. Just saw Mr. Yao in the lot. You must be new managers, he said. He extended his hand across the front desk. Name's Hank. I smiled, took his hand and shook it. I'm Mia. Nice to meet you. He tilted his head to one side. Mm, how old are you, Mia? I'm 10, I told him. Say, aren't you a little young to be running this place? He teased me. I laughed. I liked Hank immediately. I'm helping my parents, I told him. What about you? Do you live here? Sure do, he said, and pointed to one of the rooms. That's me right over there, number 12. Hank informed me that he wasn't a regular customer, the kind that just stays a day or two. He was a weekly. A weekly is someone who pays by the week. There were five of them at the Calavista. There were Mrs. Q, Mrs. T, Hank, Billy Bob, and Fred. 
You'll meet them, he said. They're all nice people. I smiled. Do you guys like living here? I asked. Oh, yeah, he said, except for Mr. Yao. He, everyone hates Mr. Yao. Really? I asked. He seems all right. Intense, but all right. Hank snorted. Trust me, he's anything but all right. Before I could ask Hank what he meant by that, the back door creaked open and my parents and Mr. Yao came back in. When I turned around, Hank was gone. Front Desk by Kelly Yang, Chapter 3 Sign here on the dotted line, Mr. Yao said to my parents, presenting them with an enormous employment contract six pages long. My parents beamed as they proudly signed their names. Mr. Yao took the signed employment contract and stuffed it into his bag. Thank you so much, Mr. Yao, for giving us this opportunity, my father said. You don't know how much it means to us. He got choked up as he said the words. We promise we'll take good care of your motel, my mom added. We won't let you down. Mr. Yao nodded and held up the manager's keys to the motel. As my parents reached for the keys, he held them just out of reach. Everything that happens in this motel is your responsibility, you understand, he asked. Something breaks, you have to pay for it. My parents nodded. Under no circumstances are you ever to leave the motel unattended, ever. One of you must always stay behind. Again, my parents nodded eagerly, even though I was thinking, wait, what? I can't go out with both my parents at the same time? But what about Disneyland? But it was condition number three that really made my jaw drop. Mr. Yao turned to me. You can't use the pool, kid, he said. Why not? I asked. If you use the pool, then all the customers will want to use the pool. So? So think of all the water and the towels I'll be wasting, he said. It's not good for the environment. I frowned at him. Somehow, I doubted this was about the environment. She understands. You won't use the pool, will you, Mia? My mother shook her head at me. I glanced at my mom at the desperation in her eyes. Okay, I said. Good, Mr. Yao grinned, satisfied. He tossed my parents the keys. That night, the sweet smells of jasmine tea filled the front office. My parents only ever got jasmine tea out for special occasions. We had packed a small tin of it before we left China, and every time something good happened, my mother would take out a few leaves and make some tea. I guess not a lot of good things happened because there was still quite a lot left. But that was all about to change. Tonight, my parents poured generously from the tin. The calming aroma brought me back to my grandmother's house, all of us crowded around the table. All these big family dinners, my cousin Shen and I would giggle and interrupt each other as we talked. I felt an ache in my tummy, razor sharp at the, shot, as, at the sh- thought of Shen. I still remembered the day I left. I could see Shen's face pressed up against the glass by the security gate at the airport, blinking furiously like he was trying not to cry. I was too. On the plane ride over, they gave us little packets of butter for our bread. Butter was very expensive in China, so I asked for extras and I put them in my pocket. I saved them for Shen for months in the fridge until it finally sank in that we weren't going back. So I ate them. My mother's voice jerked me back to reality. 
Hey, Mia, look here, look here. Look at me, she said, smiling. Huh? I asked. I looked up to see my mother crouching in front of the front desk, holding her hands up like she was going to take a picture. It's this thing she does. My mom says it's important to take pictures of the nice moments in life, even if it's just in your head. As my mom pressed down on her pretend camera, my dad and I sat up straight and gave us gave her our very best smiles. Eggplant, she said in Chinese, and I giggled because even though that's what people in China said whenever someone took their pictures, it was funny hearing it in America. As my parents unpacked, I slipped out the back to find Hank. I brought him a cup of jasmine tea. Now that we were making $150 a day, surely we could afford to buy some more. I had seen a Chinese supermarket on the way here. Hank's room was in the bank, in the back, beside the laundry room. There was a pot of cherry tomato plants in front of his room, and I knocked on the door. Hank answered on the first knock. His eyebrows shot up when he saw the tea. That for me? He exclaimed. I smiled and handed it to him. It's from China, I told him. Get out of here. The guy next door opened his, the guy next door opened his door to see what was going on. He was a white guy about the same age as Hank. He wore a Hawaiian shirt and he had this small tattoo of a sailboat on his arm. The smell of popcorn drifted from his room. Billy Bob, Hank said, meet Mia. She's the new manager. And look, she brought me some tea from China. Good to meet you, Mia, Billy Bob said, extending a hand. I shook it. Pleasure's all mine, I said. Billy Bob smiled. Say, you're a lot nicer than that old manager. The old manager treated us like second-class citizens, Hank added. Really? I asked. Hank nodded. Carefully, he lifted up the cup to his lips and took a sip. Ooh, this stuff is good. Hank turned to Billy Bob. You've got to try this. More doors opened, and soon all the weeklies were outside, talking and sipping tea under the glowing crescent. Like Billy Bob, they were white, too. Mrs. Q had long, wavy hair that ran all the way down her back. Fred had a big belly that shook when he left, when he laughed. And Mrs. T had glittering, glittery cat-eye reading glasses, which she wore on the tip of her nose. Hank was right. They were all very nice. The weeklies asked if I would join them for a game of Monopoly, but it was getting late and I needed to help my parents unpack. I bid them all good night and was about to go back to the manager's quarters when suddenly I remembered. Hey, Hank, what'd you mean by that when you er- when what you said earlier about Mr. Yao? I asked that he was anything but all right. Hank's jaw locked. You'll soon find out, kid, Hank said. The man has a coal for a heart. Front Desk by Kelly Yang, Chapter 4 Hank's words thrashed around inside me. Mr. Yao was strict, sure. Maybe even a little dramatic, but coal for a heart? Hank couldn't possibly be right. This was the man who trusted us with his motel, was living, letting, us, letting us live here for free, and was paying us $150 a day. The first thing next day I intended on setting Hank straight, but when morning came, my mother had other plans. 
Let's go see your new school today, she announced. I groaned. Another grade, another year as a new girl. When you've moved as much as I have, checking out schools is like checking out school polish or shoe polish. So far, I'd gone to four different schools for five different grades. Dale Elementary School was about five blocks east from the motel and a lot bigger than my old school. It was late August, so classes didn't start for a couple of days. As my mom and I walked across the big empty parking lot, I wondered what kind of kids went there. Nice kids, I hoped. We pushed open the door to the office and the receptionist, a blonde lady with big curls that bounced as she moved her head, looked very surprised to see us. Can I help you? She asked. Hi, I want to sign up my daughter for school. We just moved here, my, mo- my mom said. The receptionist looked up at me and down, looked me up and down. I wriggled in my tattered pants and my old big shirt from the Goodwill. I see, she said. She pushed, pushed a button on her desk phone and said, Principal Evans, we have a new student here to see you. Principal Evans wore a blazer, even though it was 90 degrees outside. She looked like what my mother calls a powerful white lady. She insisted on taking us on a tour of the school, even though my mom said we didn't need a tour. I could tell she was anxious to get back to the motel. Well, it'd only take 10 minutes, Principal Evans said, leading us toward the gymnasium in her clickety-clackety black pumps. So, Mia, tell me about yourself. I opened my mouth, but before I could say anything, my mother blurted out, she just moved here from China. Ugh... Why does she always have to tell people that? It wasn't even true. We'd been here for two years. Of course, as soon as my mother and the words, Principal Evans started talking to me like I was a turkey. Really? Wow. How do you like this country? She asked. I really like it, I quickly answered. Principal Evans put her hand to her chest and exhaled in relief. You know English. Oh, that's great. I have to admit, we don't get too many Chinese kids here. There's only one other Chinese kid in fifth grade. She smiled at me and added, I'm sure he'll be thrilled you're here. On the way home, my mom and I played our usual game, looking at big American houses and trying to figure out who lived inside. A family with two girls, my mom said, pointing out to the pink curtains upstairs. And a cat, I said. There was a little door in the front door. I turned to my mom. Hey, why'd you have to tell the principal that I just got here from China? So she'd cut you some slack? I stopped peering into the houses and peered into my mom. What do you mean? You heard what she said. There are only two Chinese kids in your grade. So? So it probably means many of the other kids are white. So? So they'll be way better than you in English, my mom said matter-of-factly. I looked at the ground. Not necessarily, I said. I might not speak native English like Jason, but my English was a lot better than when I first came, I think. Plus, I liked English. I liked how you could say a train of thought or a blanket of snow, which you couldn't in Chinese. But it didn't matter how much I liked English. My mom had already decided. Necessarily, she said. Front Desk by Kelly Ying Chapter 5 
We were surprised to find the maid cart right where we left it when we got back. It had not moved an inch. In the time that we were gone, my dad had only managed to clean two rooms. I don't know how I'm going to get through all these rooms, he said, wiping away his sweaty brow with the back of his hand. I'll help you, I offered, rolling up my sleeves. In China, I sometimes help my grandmother scrub her kitchen floor. No, my mom said, I don't want you near that stuff. She pointed at the maid cart filled with various colorful bottles of cleaning solutions. Then I'll man the front desk, I said, and I'll call you if I need anything. I ran out of the room and down the stairs before she could say no. I've got this, I told myself on the way over to the front office. This was not going to be like the restaurant. This time I was not going to fail. All I had to do was hand out keys and take the cash. How hard could it be? I got into position, climbing onto the front desk stool and crossing my hands on the desk. It didn't take long before customers started coming. Unfortunately, when they saw me, the first thing they did was ask to speak to the manager. So then I had to go get my mom. Up and down the stairs I ran. Every time she had to stop what she was doing to run down the stairs with me and into the front office just to hand the customer the key and take the money. By the fifth time, I thought, enough. I made a little sign and put it on the front desk. It read, Mia Tang, manager. The next time a customer came in and asked to see the manager, I pointed to the sign and I stared really hard at him. In science class at my last school, I learned that if you want to be a mam- if you want a mammal to do something, you should stare at it. That's because am- mammals are social creatures and we're really into hierarchy. At the top, you have your alpha, the leader, and then your betas and omegas. The difference between an alpha and a beta is the alpha wins every staring contest. So I stared and stared until my eyes went blurry and I started to see double and even then I refused to blink. Finally, the customer broke down and said, okay, okay, fine. I just need a room for the night. Yes, it worked. That'll be $20 plus tax, I told him. I watched as he dug into his pocket, pulled out a 20 and a five and slid the bills across the desk. I gave him back his change and his key. The whole time, I couldn't believe what was really happening. I was just a kid. But I asked an adult to hand me money and he actually did it. I repeated my strategy with everyone else who walked through the door that day. Point, stare, point, stare. Eventually, I didn't even need to stare. People just went ahead and gave me the money. I was so happy. I hopped off the stool, opened up the vending machine and treated myself to a cream soda. I got one for Hank too and went to find him. Unfortunately, he wasn't home. Fred, one of the other weeklies, said he was working and he wouldn't be home till late. When I got back to the front desk, the phone was ringing. The Calavista had an old-fashioned orange phone with a ton more buttons than a usual one. I didn't know what the extra buttons did, and for a second, I fantasized that if we pushed the wrong button, the whole motel would start flying. Hello? I asked, picking up the receiver. Is this the front desk? A voice asked. I looked at the glowing light and saw that the call was coming from room 6, which I had just rented out to a Mr. Stein. I cleared my voice. Mr. Stein, how can I help you? I asked, putting on my best customer service voice. I need a wake-up call tomorrow at 5 a.m., Mr. Stein said. Wake-up call, 5 a.m., I repeated. You got it. Don't forget, I have to leave then for a very important meeting. I promised I wouldn't and hung up. For the next hour, I studied the complicated phone system. 
There was a manual in the drawer, but it was one of the manuals that was impossible to read. It was like the manual that they wrote for, walk- wrote for walkie-talkies my mom used to make at the factory in China. Her walkie-talkies were great, but when they shipped them to America, nobody could figure out how they worked because the manuals were filled with typos and mistakes. I chuckled and wondered if the Calavista film system was also made in China, like me. It made me feel strangely close to it. All right, old friend, I said to the phone system, let's do this. I punched in the code for the wake-up call and entered the room number and time. To my amazement, the phone system made a beep. It worked. Pride swelled inside me as I drifted to sleep that night. It was a glorious first day. I'd rented out 12 rooms, seven of which I'd done all by myself. Not only that, I'd gotten the phone system to work. I didn't need to worry about getting up early to wake Mr. Stein. I could sleep easy knowing the awesome phone system would do it for me. Then the morning came. Front Desk by Kelly Yang, Chapter 6 Mrs. Clifton from Room 5 came running up to the front office at the crack of dawn in her pajamas. She banged on the window. Open up! I need to speak to the manager! My parents and I jumped out of bed and buzzed her in. What's wrong? I got a wake-up call for no reason at 6 a.m. That's why. That darn phone system. It must have mixed up waking Mr. Stein in Room 6 at 5 a.m. with Miss... Mrs. Clifton in room 5 at 6 a.m. <gasps> at the thought of Mr. Stein, I froze. I glanced at the clock on the wall, 6.10. <gasps> he was going to miss his very important meeting. I raced out the back door in my pajamas and across the motel, nearly crashing into Mr. Stein as his, as his door swung open. Mr. Stein stepped out of his room in his robe, squinting in the morning at the morning sun. What time is it? he asked. I swallowed hard. We had to give both Mr. Stein and Mrs. Clifton refunds that day. As I handed back the dollar bills I had worked so hard to collect, my dad put his hand on my back while I fought the tears in my eyes. It brought me straight back to Mrs. Fletcher's class last year. Mrs. Fletcher was my fourth grade teacher at my last school and every week she gave us a spelling quiz. Whenever we got all the words right, when whenever Whoever got all the words right got to hold this special notebook for the day. The cover was rubber, and it looked and smelled like a giant bar of chocolate. You could keep it for a whole day, too, which meant any time you wanted, you could sniff the delicious chocolatey scent. The notebook was filled with little messages and jokes that all of the past winners had written down that the rest of us couldn't read. It was like belonging to a special club. Everyone wanted in on this club, and so did I, but then I started getting my quizzes back and seeing all my mistakes, and the chocolate notebook became as reachable as the moon. I stopped looking at it, stopped even thinking about it, until one day, toward the end of the year, Mrs. Fletcher called my name. The winner today is Mia, Mrs. Fletcher announced. The whole class spun around to look at me. They couldn't believe that some kid from China who was still learning English could win, and neither could I. There had to be some kind of mistake. But there was no mistaking it. Mrs. Fletcher was walking straight over to me with a notebook. She placed it in my trembling hands, and I held the notebook up to my nose and breathed in deep. As the rich, chocolatey smell swirled up my nose, I wanted to cry. I was so happy. 
Then I looked up and saw Mrs. Fletcher's face. She was back at her desk and she was looking over spelling quizzes again. Something was wrong. Wait a minute, hang on. There's a mistake here, she frowned. Mia, I'm going to need the notebook back. I shook my head and clutched the notebook tight. No, you can't do this. You can't take it away. You just gave it to me. But she did. She got up, walked over, and snatched it from my hands just as swiftly as she had placed it there. The velvety chocolate scent, along with the pride in my belly, disappeared. That's what giving Mr. Stein and Mrs. Clifton back their money felt like that day. As I watched the bills slip away, the money I had worked so hard for on my first day at the front desk, I wondered which was better, to have had something just for a second and then to have taken, have it taken away or to never have had it at all. Mr. Yao came by with his son Jason later that day. We weren't expecting him, but since it was his motel, he could pop in at any time he wanted. Jason and I sat on the front, in the front office while our parents talked in the living room. While he fiddled with the keys, I tried to make conversation. So I checked a bunch of customers in yesterday, I said. He barely looked up. He wasn't much of a talker. And it went super well, I said cheerfully. I left out the part about Mr. Stein and Mrs. Clifton. He didn't need to know about that. In the next room, our parents', our parents voices grew louder. That's not what we agreed to do, I heard my mom said. Says right there in the contract, terms may change from time to time, Mr. Yao replied. Jason and I looked at each other and we both ran into the living room. But it's only been two days. You said we could have five dollars a customer, my mom said. Those were your words. I said five dollars a customer, not including the first ten and the weeklies. I jumped to my mother's defense. You didn't, I said. You said $5 a customer. You never said anything about first 10 or weeklies. No, I heard him say it, Jason insisted. I narrowed my eyes at him. You weren't even there. You went to your room, I cut back. Enough, Mr. Yao yelled. That's the deal. Take it or leave it. I looked over at my mom and I could tell she was calculating how much money we'd be losing under this new arrangement. A lot from the way that she was chewing her cheek. I turned to Mr. Yao and tried again. Please, I said to him, we're working really hard. My parents didn't even finish cleaning until eight last night, and the customers, they aren't so easy to deal with. We had to give two refunds this morning. Mr. Yao's eyes bulged. I felt myself shrink from an alpha to an omega. You had to give two refunds? I bit my lip and nodded. You're paying for those refunds, he fumed. My dad opened his mouth to protest and closed it. Go ahead, Mr. Yao said. Just say the word. There are 10,000 other immigrants who would take your job in two seconds. The blood drained from my father's face. We want the job, he quickly reassured Mr. Yao. Please, sir, we really still want the job. The corners of Mr. Yao's mouth turned. On their way out, Jason leaned over. He had a smug look on his face. Two refunds, huh? I thought you I thought it went super well yesterday. I felt my ears boil. Front desk by Kelly Yang, chapter seven. I tried not to think about stupid Mr. Yao and Jason the rest of the day, but it was extremely difficult. How could they just change the terms on us like that? 
Now, whenever a customer returned the key, instead of getting $5, we were hardly getting anything. I counted the keys in my hand. There were eight there. I knew I had checked in 12 people yesterday. The other keys must still be in the rooms. I hopped off the stool and went back out the back to investigate. I found three of the keys in the rooms. The customers just left them there and went on their way, but I could not find the key to room nine. I looked everywhere, but there was absolutely no key in the room, and the customer was long gone. Did they accidentally take the key? I walked over to the laundry room where my parents were washing the towels and sheets. It was this big room way in the back of the motel, which had an industrial washing machine and dryer that ran 24-7 and made this awful grinding noise that it was like it was drying metal screws and not sheets. Over the noise, I could hear my parents talking. Please, sir, we still really want the job, my mom mimicked my dad. Why didn't you just kneel before him? Fine. You want to quit? Let's quit, my dad said. Let's call him right now and quit. You know we can't quit, my mom said. Mia's starting school tomorrow. At the sound of my name, I thought about turning around and leaving. I hated hearing my parents argue. They hadn't really done it in China, and but ever since we came to America, it was getting harder and harder to avoid. I cleared my throat. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Mia, my dad said, spinning around. He tried to look all happy like he hadn't just been fighting. We were just talking. I wanted to say to them, it's okay, you argue sometimes, I get it. Room nine left, but he didn't leave his key. I told them, what should I do? Wait, so there's no key? Well, there's the master key, I reminded them, but I can't give that out. All right, let me see what we can do, my mom said. My mom followed me out of the laundry room. When we got back to the front desk, we opened up all the cabinets. We eventually found a white box buried in the back of a drawer with the words, official spare keys in permanent marker. My mom took, out, took the box out and opened it. And sure enough, there were 30 official spare keys in there, one for each room. Here's the one for room nine, I said, pick it, picking it up and clutching it in my hand. Great, my mom said. I was just about to hang the key on its little hook next to all the other keys when it occurred to me. We couldn't give this key out. This was our only spare key. What if someone took it? My mom sighed. We had no choice but to call Mr. Yao. As my mom explained the situation to him over the phone, I tried to squeeze in next to her to hear. What's he saying? I asked, but my mom just shook her head. I went over to my room and picked up the extension just in time to hear Mr. Yao exclaim, What kind of idiot doesn't charge a deposit on the key? That would be me. For the record, I didn't charge a deposit on the keys because, well, who charges a deposit on keys? Deposits were for renting bikes and cars. Why would anyone want to steal a key? Mr. Yao told my mom that we had to make a new key with a key machine underneath the front desk. My mom and I knelt down to look for it. We finally found it way in the back. It wasn't much of a machine, much more like an assortment of blank keys, needles, pins, and files with a big metal thing to keep the key in place as you worked on it. Leave it, my mom said. After I finish cleaning all the rooms, I'll make the key. Until then, don't touch it, okay? Don't, do not try to make it. I nodded and waited until she went out the back. Any adult who says the words don't touch to a kid should know it's an open invitation to touch it. I accepted my mom's invitation and picked up one of the blank keys. 
holding it up to the spare room nine key with it, all its little ridges and valleys. I wondered, were they supposed to? F- were they? Were we supposed to file the ridges and valleys? Was that how this worked? I gently ran the file against the blank key, and to my surprise, it made a little dent. I ran the file again, another dent. Hey, this wasn't so bad. I didn't even need the metal thing to clamp the key down. I could just do it by holding the key. I filed and filed, and with each new dent, I sang, "Look at me! I'm making a key." I was having so much fun that I forgot to look at where I was filing and accidentally filed my finger. Ow! I cried. I dropped the file and the key and held up my throbbing finger. The skin of my index finger had been rubbed raw and it was bleeding. I ran to the bathroom to get a bandaid, but there weren't any, so I took some toilet pa- paper and wrapped it around my finger. The toilet paper turned bright red in seconds. I grabbed more toilet paper and held it to the wound, even though it hurt like crazy. Eventually, the bleeding stopped. I wrapped the toilet paper in scotch tape around and around. With my tiny mummy finger all set, I sat back down at the front desk and glanced at the unfinished key. I should have stopped right there. I should have put the key away and waited for my mom. That would have been the sensible thing to do. But I had this thing where if I start something, I have to finish it, no matter what—books, Chinese chess, or the last strawberry on the on this candied skewers I used to eat back home. When I started something, I finished it. And so I picked up the blank key again, and with my gigantic finger held out high out of the way, I started filing. Ten minutes later, I was done. It wasn't perfect, I'll admit, and it wasn't pretty by any standard. But when I held the spare key to the blank, it had all the same ridges and valleys. As I stood back to admire my creation, a customer came in. "Got any rooms in the back?" he asked. I did indeed, and proudly handed him my new key. "What the heck!" the customer yelled, ringing the office a couple minutes later. "The key you gave me doesn't work." As it turns out. Though I had filed the ridges to perfection, I had forgotten to smooth out the edges. So when the customer put the key in, it got stuck. I rushed out the back to help him. We pushed and we pulled, and finally managed to jam it into the doorknob and unlock the room. When the customer laid eyes on the room, his face fell. This is a lot smaller than what I was expecting, he said. I looked around the room. There was a bed, dresser, television, small chair, table, and it was modest, sure. But what else did he need? Why don't you get settled in, and I'll come back in ten minutes. I'll give you a new key. I asked. Mr. Lewis looked like he still wasn't sure about the room and the whole stuck key thing. So I threw in, and I'll bring you a free soda. How's that? He perked up and said, "Okay." Then I walked back to the front desk. I shook my head. Why was it? Why was it that everything in America had to do with money? People wouldn't give you back your key unless you charged them a deposit. They'd hold a simple mistake over your head unless you gave them a free soda. At my old school in China, there was this kind elderly man who lived near the building. Every day, he'd give me a popsicle on my way home in exchange for telling him what I learned at school that day. That was it. No money, no credit cards. Just hey, how was school? I sighed. I missed popsicle, Grandpa. There was no one like that here. Here, everything had a price, even kindness. 
No sooner had I gotten back to the front office than Mr. Lewis called me back to his room. Come back! Come back right now, he said to the phone. From the urgency in his voice, I thought it was a real emergency. Had the smoke alarm gone off? Did the television explode? I rushed back to room nine and found Mr. Lewis standing in the bathroom staring at the trash can. Do you see that? he asked, pointing at the small plastic trash can under the sink in the bathroom. I stared into the black bin. I couldn't see anything. See what? That! he shouted. He picked up the trash can and shoved it in my face. I squinted into darkness and saw what appeared to be a single long string. It looked like dental floss. You see it? Mr. Lewis asked. Yes, I see it now, I said. This room has not been properly cleaned, Mr. Lewis said. I assure you it has. Clearly it hasn't or we wouldn't be having this conversation. I would like another room, a bigger one. Sir, all our rooms are the same size. Mr. Lewis crossed his arms and said, I don't believe you. I would like for you to open up every single room and I will pick one for myself. That's when I lost it. Maybe it was my throbbing finger or the two refunds or Mr. Yao changing the deal, but I just couldn't control myself. Sir, that's ridiculous. You can't pick your own room. This isn't a salad bar. As soon as I said the words, I knew I had gone too far, but it was too late to snatch them back. Well, Mr. Lewis said, fuming, if that's the way it's going to be, then I would like a refund. No. Please, Mr. Lewis, I pleaded with him. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that thing about the salad bar. I don't know why I said that. I squeezed my eyes shut and confessed. I've never actually even been to a salad bar. I've only seen them on TV. Mr. Lewis looked shocked. You've never been to a salad bar? I shook my head. His eyes softened. Why are you doing this? He asked me. Shouldn't you be out playing? I looked away from him. Why were Americans always asking kids to go out and play? In China, kids almost never played. They had to sit for exams starting at an early age. Except for family get-togethers, every minute after school was packed with homework, drilling, revision, and dictation. When I, got, when I went to first grade in China, I only got two minutes a day to play. That's literally what it said on a schedule I made for myself. Five o'clock to 5.02, play. I wanted to say to Mr. Lewis that I'd never really played and I didn't intend to start now. The other part of me wanted to say, this is playing. I got to run a motel. Was there any better way to play? In the end, I simply said, I like my job very much. Mr. Lewis looked slightly embarrassed and said, of course you do, I'm sorry. He looked around the room once more. You know what, this will do just fine, he said. Really? I said. I asked. I couldn't believe my ears. And I'm sorry I couldn't. I gave you such a hard time. Here, let me empty that for you, I said. Taking the trash can from his hands, I went outside, quickly emptied the trash can in the dumpster, and placed it back in Mr. Lewis's bathroom. Is there anything I can do to make your stay more pleasant? I asked him. Mr. Lewis thought for a second. Then he held up a finger and announced, Pillows. Pillows? Yes, I need four pillows, two for under my head and two, one for between my legs and one to hug. I smiled. Done.